Sometimes I get lost within the sad and somewhat criminal stories of my past. There was the time in which I spent a night in prison on a drunk and disorderly charge, where I was forced to find profound meaning in an oppressive environment while reading a John Grisham novel. The small chapbook I wrote shortly after, reading the Pelican Brief in Peoria, never found a publisher. But I can assure you that I had a transcendent experience that went far beyond anything that Azar Nafisi ever wrote. And I'm pretty sure the combination of tequila and mescaline had something to do with it. Okay, so I am here with Azar Nafisi, who is the author, of course, of Reading Lolita in Tehran, as well as most recently, Things I've Been Silent About. Azar, how are you doing? Fine, thank you, and this rainy day. Yeah, this, it is, well, it's not raining white yet, but uh, it probably what will rain again of, later. Yeah. In this sort of rainy day, I'm nice fine. snow, I suppose. <laughs> well, I wanted to start with the notion of authenticity, because I think that that is a predominant theme in this particular book. Uh, let's talk about the pictures that are juxtaposed throughout this book. They reminded me very much of Siebold's pictures oh. in his books, because... Every time you bring up a photo, you have to comment upon it. And I wanted to ask, starting with the pictures, we'll get into the text later, mm-hmm. how pictures served as a way for you to essentially corroborate memory and yeah. feelings and thoughts with uh, your impressions now in the present of this particular life that you, you lead. Yeah, well, with this particular book, it was also because of my obsession with pictures. Uh-huh. Because, you know, I, I could not... Um, understand my mother in so many ways and uh, I got into this habit of looking at her old pictures and I would do it with a magnifying glass and and, and go over the direction of her gaze over the way she leant against something you know and so pictures for me became a window towards something that was opaque of course they themselves can become very opaque but uh, nonetheless I was trying to decipher through the details something that went beyond the the photographs. But I'm, I'm curious, and I'll get into more specific uh, questions along these lines, but were you looking at a photo and you had a different impression? I, you mentioned this multiple times throughout the book mm-hmm. of seeing a particular way uh, in which a person is smiling yeah. and how this affects your memory of that particular person. I mean, is it really authentic enough uh, to have a picture and to decipher it now? This also brings to mind the notion of uh, Iranian birth certificates. Oh, I yeah. mean, uh, you bring this up in both of your books, uh, the notion that, well, unlike here in America where we just get a birth certificate right when we get out of the womb in you have Iran. To wait for it, you have to from, have a photograph. Yes, you, well, you have to have a photograph, yeah. and not only that, but you also, uh, when you get married, it actually gets oh, lodged yes. on you the birth certificate. Oh, yes, you have all of that and the, the marriage and the death. Yes. But, so. but, 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 in this case, and pardon the lengthy question, but I'm sure uh, you'll see where I'm going, uh, Fariba's birth certificate is, is fake, you note, later yes. on in the book, and, and also the marriage of your parents was built, as you say, onto a lie. So you have this scenario throughout your life mm-hmm. in which you have the most authoritative text, being a birth certificate, yes. being unreliable. So this brings me back to the the, the question of the oh, pictures oh, and the text. Yes, d- definitely. I mean, uh, authenticity itself is such a dubious word, yeah. isn't it? Uh, uh, authentic to whom and at what uh, point in your life are you, you know, authenticity itself changes, what is authentic changes. Uh, but definitely, and, and especially in regards to my life in Iran and with my mother, um, the question of what appeared and what people claimed uh, to be real and, and, and what one discovered to be the truth uh, um, 
those two were running parallel to one another, uh, seldom meeting, actually. I guess the question, though, is how can you, who specializes in books throughout your uh, life, I yeah. mean, that's your, that's, your, your, that's your living, you know? <laughs> so so <laughs> here you have this, this unreliable relationship with text that your life is predicated upon, and uh, this leads me into how you can even trust text if there is this lack of authenticity. Well, well you have to trust the story. Mm. Because the story, if you want to be the story, to be the story to be good, quote unquote, um, you have to be true to the story, and it takes you places that someone sometimes you don't want to go. It forces you to reveal things that you don't want to reveal. But if you're focused on the story, you realize that um, the story will take its revenge if you don't give it what it needs. So that is why I think so many authors or so many people keep saying, like Vita Sackville-West, um, um, in terms of her diaries, she yeah. says that uh, I'm writing um, because of truth, because there's so many ways, so many pieces to the truth, and you know, you reveal your truth. It is not because you have hold of the truth, but because the process of storytelling reveals the truth both to you and hopefully to the readers. Does it matter then if you don't quite have the exact truth? I mean, there's a lot of controversy here in America in particular oh, yeah. about what a memoir really should be and how accurate it needs to well, be. Well, you know, there, 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 there are two things I need to say about that. One is when you deliberately fabricate something, um, and unfortunately a lot of times in terms of the recent events it is to sell. You know, I, I tried to, actually, the scandalous parts in my book are very much buried. I don't like, I, this was a test for me. Can you write a memoir, which is a family memoir, which doesn't come out with fireworks, yeah. and it can still attract people? Because what is extraordinary to me is what we call the ordinary. Yeah. You know, nothing is ordinary. Uh, that was what I was trying to investigate. But so if you deliberately fabricate, I think then we're entering a different world, sure. you know. But a memoir, because it's a narrative and it's a story, by nature it's a construct. I think we should admit that at the outset, okay. that it is a construct. You try to remain true to facts, but what are facts? From whose point of view? And one thing that I discovered, which is very obvious now to me, but it wasn't then, is how much you select you know, there were people in my life who were very central to my life, like my brother, whom, you know, I love and, uh, you know, we've had many, many experiences together, but he was not necessarily central to this story. So you cut and paste according to the themes uh, that, 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 that your story demands. And so how could you say a memoir is not a construct? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, this is interesting in light of the fact that the, fir the first book, or rather either the third book, actually, technically speaking, yeah. uh, was Actually, the fourth book, because I also wrote a children's story, oh, Bibi okay. and the Green Voice. It, Got it. It came out in Italian. Ah, okay, okay. <laughs> so the fourth book, <laughs> the quattro. <laughs> yeah, the quattro. <laughs> the quattro. Uh, this is subtitled A Memoir in Books. And yeah. so you're dealing essentially with a construct of a construct, yes. possibly, with reading Lolita. And yet with this, you're dealing with the notion of photographs and uh, history and yeah. uh, a timeline, you know, for, for other readers and the like. So so this 
almost demands uh, the, this question of authenticity uh, is becomes further uh, uh, pronounced in this book. Yeah. And, and as such, uh, it, it then becomes a question of, well, now you're creating a more concrete construct, so to speak. You, you, you try to be as true to the facts as is possible. You know, um, the timeline and, and, and everything that went with it, um, I just wanted people to know as much as they can about just plain history that went behind, uh, you know, behind the scenes in this book. Um, but um, that is also the, the subtitle of this book is, um, is Memories, because what happened to me would be, I, of course, I had diaries, I had letters, I had, you know, all sorts of things like that. But um, one thing that drove this book was were the memories that were leaping out. Uh, and some memories were very vivid uh, and others were not, you know. Um, so I wanted, again, to be as close to truth as possible, you know. Uh, and I have, a, um, I have a quotation from Emily Dickinson there where she talks about, but are not all facts dreams yeah. once, you know, <laughs> they're, they're put behind us. Yeah. I'm so glad because we're totally on the same page because my next question does, in fact, bring up dreams and relates uh -huh. again to this question of constructs. I mean, your father, as you point out, dreamed of a happy marriage. Yeah. And while in prison, of course, he maintained this really elaborate 1,500-page diary. I want to read something from the book. You write that uh, you're reminded of a recurring theme in fiction about how our dreams become tainted by reality, how we can turn them into desperate obsessions for which we sacrifice that essential sense of dignity and integrity that we yearn for when we indulge in a dream. But considering that you also insist that your father's published memoir represented essentially a cardboard version of himself, this yeah. then uh, uh, calls to mind whether there's something tragic in this idea. And uh, it makes me wonder whether, in fact, uh, fiction, of course, it, books give us hope in humanity. They sometimes enable us to perceive reality. But if you're perceiving reality through a cardboard version of yourself, well, then there's the rub. So how do you answer it, it, this? It, it is very tragic. Well, actually, you had two points um, in, in, in one question. I don't know how you want to go about that. Oh, well, we can do both. That's we fine. We can do yeah. both. Is yeah, I've okay? just kind of thrown a whole bunch uh, of things okay. at uh, well, well, because, because the first part when you talked about dreams tainting um, uh, our reality, uh, I saw it in, the life, in my parents' lives. I saw it in the political life that I experienced in Iran. And, of course, I have experienced it in books, in Great Gatsby or in, in, in Lolita. One thing about my parents, which was very tragic, was that my mother's dream of her... She created a dream out of her past. She became frozen in her past. And, and she could not live because... Everything was in reference to that frozen past. My father had also this dream, uh, ironically. I mean, he was such an interesting man and so courageous publicly. But privately, she wanted a, he wanted a happy marriage, you know. And the truth was that that marriage was not happy. So he had to impose so many things uh, on, on, on trying to make it happy. And the second marriage was the same deal, you know, that it was not essentially a good marriage, but he tried to pretend to himself and to the world that it was. So we become, like Gatsby, both tainted and tragic. Yeah. Because these are essentially good people 
you know, who are harming themselves more than anyone else, really, by bringing the past into the present. Sure. That is one thing. The second question that you had was was what? It was related to dignity and yeah. the ability to parse reality by this notion of presenting a cardboard version of yourself. Okay. Because if you're dealing with yeah, a construct, that, yes. Yeah. No, that one, what I meant was that my father, and, and, and that, again, I really admire his courage and also... His craziness, in a sense, courage and craziness are very close to one another sometimes. He wrote a memoir, uh, which he wanted to publish, which was absolutely frank for a man of not just for an Iranian man, but for a man of his generation to write a memoir like that and then think that he can publish it in the Islamic Republic of Iran. It is really tremendous. But he was told both by friends, we gave it to a literary friend who to look and edit by him and by the man who, by the people who published my father's, um, that the personal is not interesting. Who wants to know about your sister getting killed at the age of four? Who wants to do this? And and they, they persuaded him to take the personal out and to only write a political memoir. And that political memoir, I found a cardboard version. Because when, no matter what you write, the personal should be there. Because in narrative, you're dealing with a person. You're not dealing with a a concept. And uh, that was always very sad to me. And that is actually why I brought so much of my father's diaries into my book. Uh, I wanted to restore that in some way. But this also brings to mind another side issue, and that is grappling onto a book at a time when reality is really troublesome. For example, the image in both of these books during the Iran-Iraq war is you grabbing on, latching on to mysteries, generally a Dorothy Sayers book, while the bombs are dropping outside. I mean, this is something that uh, makes me wonder, well, how do you find reality? How can you face that particular reality through being submerged into a construct. Well, What's the question here for you? Well, um, uh, I remember I, I mentioned it in reading Lolita, uh, how Henry James, um, uh, when the for- First World War uh, started, that he could not cope with. To him, it was the end of civilization, and rightly so. Every war is the end of civilization, uh, or maybe it is civilization. Um, he would write to his friend and say, feel, feel all you can. I have realized that in the face of extreme violence, you need to become less and less like that violence. You have to discover in yourself through, for me, it's through books and through connections to people I love, you know, to discover those qualities that go exactly against the Iran-Iraq war. And I would find them in these writings. In you mysteries, know, oddly uh, enough. In, not, not just in mysteries. I talk also about Henry James. I talk That's about um, Tolstoy. I talk about all sorts of different writings. Mystery writing because it makes light of something. Um, Henry James because there is feeling and ambiguity. But all of them connect me to the life that real life is trying to take away from me. And it reminds me that there hopefully will be life after war and there was life before war, you know. And that is what we did in Iran. Um, uh, cream pops were taken from us. Uh, I mean, they weren't taken from us, but um, um, parties were taken yeah. from us. So we would party um, while the bombs were again falling. Yeah. Um, uh, Marx Brothers, we would watch in between blackouts. People need to assert life. And people need to fight brutality both directly 
and as well as not giving into it, not becoming its victim. Yeah. I don't want to become a victim of the of the war. And the way I don't become the victim of the war, I want to preserve that humanity which is taken away from me. But it might likewise be argued that by essentially confining yourself indoors and secretly having these parties and secretly watching the Marx Brothers and doing these, quote, immoral acts that are banned by the Mm. Islamic Republic, uh, you are essentially creating almost an alternative reality. I mean, is that reality, how is that compatible? For that, you have to blame a totalitarian system Mm -hmm. because every... Everywhere you go, uh, I mean, you go to Eastern Europe or to fascist Germany or, I mean, Iran is not as bad as any of these uh, systems I mentioned. But you go to a repressive system and you you go to concentration camps where people try to grow a flower or, you know, it becomes almost corny. Uh, Or Primo Levi talking about um, wanting to talk, uh, translate Dante to his French... um, uh, Everywhere when something like this happens, people create their alternative right life. Now, that doesn't mean that in real life you're not fighting as well. I mean, people fight in different ways. Uh, for many of my students, it was, you know, these young people would be flogged um, for wearing lipstick. Yes. Uh, and, and they would do it. They would go to jail, come back and do it again, yeah. you know. At the same time, they also would demonstrate, and I participated in many demonstrations um, against the Cultural Revolution, again, you know, or for the women's rights, you know. So there are all these different ways of going about uh, resisting that sort of reality. One thing that I don't want to become, and it's a struggle, is to become like my enemy, because it was so easy when I was in Iran, and even when I'm here, to want to insult those people and to just desire that they won't be there yeah. anymore. And then you would become like them. But on the flip side, the totalitarian state mm. nevertheless created conditions where you could create reading and, and parties and Marx Brothers movies and all that, as well as your father, they, who you depict it, in this book, is in prison. In prison, he writes three children's books. Yeah. He translates. He writes this, of course, this 1,500-page yeah. diary. So it's almost as if uh, there is, I suppose, a kind of uh, uh, a hopeful underbelly to the dark... Well, stri- th- th- that comes from life, not from the system. Mm-hmm. That comes from the fact that as long as people are alive, you know, there's hope. And as long as people are alive, they will try to live. You know, so... It is not to the credit of totalitarian systems that people live, you know, but it is to the people's credit that they do live, you know, and they find ways. Because my father, I mean, I write in my book that so many times in his diaries, he says, I wish I were dead. I wish I just didn't live. And there were so many moments like that uh, in my life as well that, you know, um, that you wish that (laughs) what was life all about, you know, there was nothing. But, you know, so many people give credit for the fact that women in the Islamic Republic are so dynamic, you know, so not giving in, that the youth are so well informed. They give credit to the regime Mm -hmm. while people are doing it despite the regime, you know. And so um, I think that totalitarian systems the hopeful thing about it is that um, as long as people want to live, um, these systems fail. Yeah. I think that the Islamic Republic is a failed state. But 
simultaneously, if we're talking about limitations, from limitations, great things often happen. You, oh, oh, you're when right. you oppress people, whether they're, it's you know fascist Italy causing the neorealistic filmmakers yeah. to make Open City, for example, great things nevertheless happen. What? And I suppose you can blame the system to some degree over the thriving impulse of humanity to go ahead and accomplish great cultural works. There was that uh, great Iranian filmmaker uh, who... Kiarostami, you mean? Oh, well, uh, him uh, what, too. But, well, but uh, Kiarostami belonged to before the revolution, oh, of yeah. course, and yes, so that's many true. of them. Yeah. But the apple, which was, uh, which I'm uh, blanking on Majidi, the name. Majidi, no. Uh, yeah. uh, Jesus, uh, she was 17 when oh, she did this? Oh, yeah, yeah, I know, yeah. Samira Mahmoud. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. right, that's right. I mean, that came despite uh, oh, these limitations. Oh, yes, you know, um, what you're saying reminds me of this great debate, but I wish I had the book in front of me because <laughs> the, the, they talk so well. Um, um, the... Uh, Pol- the great Polish um, uh, poet Milos, yes, um, uh, and um, another great po- um, Pole, uh, Gombrowicz. We told Gombrowicz. Now Milos is telling Gombrowicz that we create great literature because a bruised culture. He calls it the bruised culture. Does that? And Gombrowicz is gorgeous in his response because he says a bruised culture can create great works, but that culture who lives in the rarefied airs of the mountains can also produce amazing things. And he he mentions Proust, yeah. of course. So, what I'm worried about. I mean, what you say is a testament to the fact that under repression, a lot of times uh, people's creative uh, emotions come. And also every writer, every artist know that art deals with limitations, that you have to understand your limits not just your freedoms, sure. you know. So, you know, they're putting the limits on us and it becomes a challenge how to go about it. Uh, but the fact is that you don't need to be repressed to be a great artist. Yeah. Uh, so both exist. I guess uh, you just can you know. I bring this political association up because you yourself bring it up in relation to uh, two uh, writers, uh, in relation to, of course, you know, Ferdowski, uh, that's a thousand years ago, but you also bring it up in relation to uh, The Prince and the Blind Owl, pointing oh, yes. out that this is a framework with which to understand Iran in the 20th century, yes. these two particular points. Uh, it might sufficiently be argued that, well, this is, in fact, human life and not necessarily something that is presented as a response to a political system. It's just, you know, oh, if you yeah, have emotions, yeah. you're going to go ahead and write no matter what, no matter if it's totalitarian or republic or democratic or whatnot, you know? Yeah, you know... I, I think that that is what actually makes me worried about this country right now, mm-hmm. to tell you the truth. The fact that we have to recognize that human beings cannot live with it the, within, without um, fulfilling their creative impulse. You know, whether you live in a democratic society or whether you live in a totalitarian society, that impulse is, should, you know, should be there. And sometimes, unfortunately, we understand it better when we live under repression. Sure. Because I think that's the gift that people from that other world bring you to remind you of that, you know. Uh, so, so, I, so I, I agree with you on that. Um, well, I remember that when I was writing my book on Nabokov. Now, I, I mention it, I think, in this book that I wanted to talk not just about his books, but uh, about the reality under which I read. I couldn't do that. So I had to wreck my brains. Yeah. How to write a book which was just a book of literary criticism you know, very, very prim and proper. At the same time, I wanted that book to resonate with every single theme in the reality of the Islamic Republic, you know. And that was really exciting, you know, the challenge of doing something like that. Um, and and um, I, I still look at that book with a lot of affection because um, of all the pain that went through 
creating it as a metaphor for for something else as well. But certainly, but going back to the issue of the blind owl and oh. the prince, I mean, here you are imparting some political relationship with the system at the particular time. And one might also argue that maybe this is well, just as bad as the infamous Great Gatsby trial that you presided yeah. over in Finding Lolita that you describe. I mean, I I'm wondering how much we should uh, we should Sh- interpret uh, political connection to, to no 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 we like, shouldn't yeah. I don't think uh, well I'm, I'm glad actually you brought that out and sometimes because my books are always con- uh, involved with the intersection between fiction and reality that that comes up I definitely think that we should not I think that books are great and are subversive when they are not looked at politically you know Great Gatsby was not written for any reason but the fact that it's the great Gatsby. Yes. And and that is what makes it resonate on so many levels. And the same is true of the prince and, and, and the blind owl. The universality of those themes goes beyond any political system, although they also give us information about about the system, you know. But 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 even great novels that have political ideas at the center go beyond that political system you know that is the great thing about fiction it defies politics well let's talk about the memoir i mean there's one uh, passage here where you talk about uh, the relationship between politics and, and your your mother you write long before i came to appreciate how a ruthless political regime imposes its own image on its citizens stealing their identities and self-definitions i had experienced its impositions in my personal life my life within my family now by this do you mean the general atmosphere of the yeah. Islamic Revolution, uh, or do you mean the way that your mother would constantly pry in on you, listening into your phone calls, going through your diaries and the like? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, uh, this is a very intriguing question I, of I, political connection here. Well, you know, I wanted to... Um, I didn't want to, actually. I, I, I was discovering this mainly, and uh, um, that these intersections between the personal and and. and, 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 and the larger than personal, and, and, and how individual relationships become microcosms um, that then play out on a larger scale uh, in terms of politics. So I realized that, you know, these feelings that I had in the Islamic Republic, like the feeling of shame because you, you become complicit despite the fact that you feel you're a victim, but you're still lying, yeah. you know. I thought, my God, when I was thinking about this book, I thought, that happened in our household all the time. Yeah. My mother, we, we had to lie to her constantly in order to do what we wanted to do. And then we would feel ashamed of having lied to her, you know. And, and so that is why individual stories are important because they're universal at the same time on so many levels, you know. And, and I think that is what I meant uh, over there. Um, her prying into my life created the same kind of feeling of outrage and guilt that later political spying um, would, would uh, you know, um, impose on me. Uh, and I think I maybe um, reacted in the same way. In terms of politics, I think I was more courageous than in my personal life. Sure. And that is another thing. In our personal life, sometimes we're less courageous than we are in public. Uh, so personal courage for me now has become much more important. The question, though, is whether we often look at events in our personal life and apply some political connection that, well, either it doesn't exist or it allows us 
going back to this issue we were talking about before about how books allow us to create almost an alternative reality with which to cope with the dawning reality in front of us, whether that is why we make these political connections or why uh, you made those political uh, connections. I, 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 I don't know anymore because what I discovered, I discovered through the process of writing. And, 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 and these ideas excite me. I mean, you know, one moment I'm writing about um, my mom reading my letters and the next moment I think, oh, <laughs> yeah. you know, this is how it, uh, how it relates. And now, um, so I'm not sure, but what I think is that, of course, not with my book, I'm talking about great books like, you know, um, Ferdowsi or, um, or um, uh, Shakespeare or people like that. Uh, with great books, there are so many resonances because you go so deeply into the particular that you turn it into um, the universal. And the universal is everything. You know, it is also political, but it is so many other things, you know. And uh, for me, in my tiny corner, um, I discovered this when I was writing, you know. Uh, but, but for me, in this book, what is important is not really the political aspect. Um, this is really about individual relations and the complexities um, that we all go through. Uh, so many people have been telling me uh, some wonderful journalists put aside their pads and start talking to me about their own mother. <laughs> you know, and it's so strange. Don't get me started. <laughs> there you go. I mean, and, I'm, and, and I enjoy that connection. Uh, far more than this political debate, which after a while becomes so tainted, uh, not yeah. tainted, uh, just boring. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I'm curious if it's really a matter of the fact that you're dealing with a narrative or a book of any kind, and it's inherently about how one's individual subjective view of that book or interpretation of that book uh, draws out, I suppose, these personal connections, whether they be to your mother or to some larger political yeah. framework. That's really what we're talking about here, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. And um, uh, for me, I mean, for me, a book, especially novel, of course, because in poetry we use metaphor deliberately. A novel is always metaphoric, um, unlike what I think was Jacobson. I mean, it is metaphoric in the sense that it is always both about a presence and an absence. And both the presence and the absence explain one another, you know. So, so I guess that um, that is also true of a memoir, yeah. uh, although it should be more straightforward. But I discovered that it's not at all straightforward all when right. you write a memoir. I'm going to approach this question from a totally different angle in relation to what you write late in the book, uh, just before you're about to leave Iran for good. You write, people are collectors for different reasons, but usually there is some specific purpose or focus, an obsession with matchboxes, for examples, or ashtrays, or art. They tend to target specific objects. My mother seemed to hoard more than to collect, and what she hoarded was of no use. Now, this makes me wonder, well, how much of this notion of... Uh, collection versus hoarding applies to this what we're talking about here, mm -hmm. which is a matter of, I suppose, collecting little uh, tidbits from books or from reality or creating alternate realities. I mean, is there a danger that we might actually steer off the track and get into that hoarding quality as opposed to the specific focus, which you seem to advocate here? Well, well, well you could do that. Again, I, I, I'll go back to the story. You could, you could hoard rather than collect if you're not true to the story. Yeah. Because the story, because every story, I mean, right there when you talk about memoir as a construct, the truth of the matter is that uh, it's impossible to write about every fact in your life, 
you know, and 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 narrative is always about order and and, and some form of harmony. So hoarding is not about order and harmony, and 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 so. If you are just throwing out bits and pieces, they won't go anywhere. Yeah. They won't collect into a symphonic um, construct. Sure. Uh, and so the story can go every which way. I might have done that or not. I don't yeah. know. I was going to ask you that, whether there was know. actually any hoarding. Uh, uh, for I don't know. Stage. I know that um, it took a long time mm-hmm. to cut and cut and cut and, and trim and add one little sentence, but cut 15 pages. Sure. You know? And this book took me many years. You know, And until the last moment, I was trying to wrest it from my publisher and not give it to them. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Um, but but you know the judgment of whether I have been hoarding or collecting uh, is out there. I have no control over the book anymore, and the judgment is with the people who read. Well, it's not necessarily the judgment with me or any no, reader. No, no, no. It's, I mean, it's I mean, also very much I mean, about the like feeling. I mean, yeah. the feeling because at first when you're writing, you're straying a lot, mm-hmm. you know, because you're not sure. And then, of course, you know, you have an idea, but but. But as you write, uh, these little pieces come together. And that is why so many pieces that are very important to you mm-hmm. have to be thrown out. Sure. You know, and, and that was also very painful to throw out pieces that I loved, but they wouldn't work. But you have such harsh words about your mother at multiple times. And this particular passage made me again think of the maxim of, well, ultimately, as we grow older, we realize that we're essentially our own parents to a large degree. Yeah, but, you know, um, those words end in both regret yeah. on my part as well as... Um, certainly, certainly. Uh, and and it, it broke my heart. Mm-hmm. It broke my heart that what, in the last years of her life, what broke my heart was that she never enjoyed all the things that she had. You know, uh, maybe it made me go the other way around and lose things all the time as if nothing mattered and things do matter, uh, in fact. But but that that particular passage was not harsh on her. It was it was a, it was something of regret that that she would do that. Yeah. Well, to talk about a slightly lighter uh, subject or a more fun (laughs) subject, um, I wanted to ask you about uh, the fact that, well, we have a timeline in this, we have a glossary in this that has, uh, in many cases, very obvious uh, historical references. And I wanted to ask, uh, it seems to me, I mean, obviously reading Lolita was a huge success. And I'm wondering if these particular elements were included because of this, I suppose, commercial instinct and whether uh, writing this, you're, you're dealing with truths here, right? And you're dealing also with a lot of very fascinating Ar- Iranian writers as well that you have along the way. Uh, do these commercial factors, did they they hinder you at any point? Uh, was there any any uh, question you, of, of, of whether we've got to have a reading Lolita 2 that's going to sell like hotcakes? Or? No, I didn't want it. Actually, you can check that with my publisher. I told that to my editor from the very start. Okay. That there were two things that I didn't want this book to be. Although I think that they have affinities, uh, definitely. I, I guess every writer's bo- their books become siblings um, in one sense. I told them that first I didn't want this, and, and it's not like reading Lolita because it's so personal. And in reading Lolita, I am so, uh, you know, not personal about myself, yeah, yeah. you know. The second thing was that I did not want this book to come out as another Iran book. Yeah. And that is why actually at the actually insistence of my publisher, 
we put the glossary because they felt maybe at some time points that I was so personal that people might get lost in the historical aspects of it. Or we were using words like my son came to me and said, Mom, when people called your father Ahmad Khan, a lot of people don't know that Khan is an attribute like Mester. So they think Grandpa's Baba's name is Ahmad Khan. So that was when I finally, at the last moment, almost the last month we started, I think, doing it. I don't remember. We added those things because people told me that you're going too far and clarification is important, you know. But I didn't want this to be another Iran book. This was a book about my family. And the risk I was taking was whether people would like it and relate to it or they would think, oh, this is not about Iran, really. It could, as Bob Thompson has said today in Washington Post, this could happen in Beijing, <laughs> you know. And, 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 and no, we're not going to read this book, you know. Uh, because I, I think an author should really avoid being categorized into trends of the day, you know. Um, if you're a good author people will like you anyway. And if you're a bad author, um, you should be shunned. Yeah. (laughs) Nailed (laughs) against the wall. Uh, This leads me, though, to ask about, you're obviously an Abokov fan. That goes without saying. (laughs) Raveling things up further or making things more ambiguous, I'm wondering if, if early drafts, maybe there's an appeal perhaps in that to you and whether in the editing stage you've iron things out a little bit more or why you haven't I mean it would seem to me that like you know if I've got a book with uh, uh, you know Lolita on my CV I, I think it goes without saying that the next book I do could have some Nabokov- Nabokovian uh, uh, playfulness oh. you know you know what I'm saying I, I'm wondering uh, you, if you had I, any desire to sort of I guess uh, no no really not okay actually the, the idea of Nabokov came with someone who interviewed me I don't remember who it was. Well, maybe it was again Washington Post, but someone who recently interviewed me and asked me, was there any relationship between the pedophile that I explained? And and today someone was asking that me. That is interesting, but, yeah. But it wasn't there in my mind. Yeah. Uh, that, that idea wasn't there. Actually, I thought that Nabok... I have to show you this. For the foreword, I had a part where I would say that this... I would talk about um, memoir as a betrayal because memoir is always a betrayal. Uh, and you cut and paste and tailor people, uh, you mutilate yourself even and put it there. And I mentioned that um, maybe I should have written the kind of memoir that Nabokov or Muriel Spark wrote, uh, which was just a literary construct. And I felt that with this novel, I, I strayed from him because I bring out things that he never does. I have now discovered all those uh, ghost skeletons in the cupboard that he covers, you know, in, in his stories. And in fact, you did even mention Speak Memory in this book, although you mentioned him quite a lot in and I, I Lolita. Had yeah. it, I had mentioned it in my prologue about the kind of memoir yeah. that this is not, sure. you know. Um, but but I, I had a lot of um, soul searching about writing this memoir, especially because some of the authors I loved, like Muriel Spark and Nabokov, would not do that sort of a thing. Um, but then maybe um, but then, you know, you realize you're not them, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and that even if they disapproved and looked at your book and thought, 
ooh, you know, what is she doing here? Um, you have to do what you've got to do. Sure, you know. Sure. Uh, uh, so, uh, no, I, I am a very different writer, I think. Uh, that is maybe why I can appreciate him. Uh, he's he's very self-conscious. Yeah, you know, I'm sure that James is very self-conscious, uh, and, and and Austin even. I mean, every writer to a degree uh, is very deliberate, uh, but he's very self-consciously self-conscious. You know, and uh, I don't know if I am that way. Well, Azar, thanks so much for taking the time. It was Thank a pleasure you. chatting. This with was you. really fun. Oh, great. This was very challenging, oh. and and I, I I you know I have to think. Uh,